My name is Brad, and I'm the lead pastor here at Hillside Church, and I want to thank you for listening to one of our messages from Hillside Church. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of Scripture is still speaking today. So if it's me speaking or if it's someone else, we pray that the message you are about to hear would allow you to know God, know His hope, know His purpose, and know His power. Enjoy the message. join with me this morning. We're going to share just a short message this morning. You can turn to Ezra chapter 7 as we've been journeying through the book of Ezra for the last three weeks. So we got this week and next week and then we're done. And so we, we have journeyed through and we've seen a lot take place over the last few weeks in the book of Ezra. A lot of stories and a lot of things that have taken place in the first three three weeks that we've looked at this. The miraculous moment where God speaks to, to what amounts to the king of the world and instructs him to let the people of Judah go free, go home, and rebuild the temple. But even that in and of itself isn't a big enough miracle for God that, that just somehow they would be set free, but that God would go and do what only God can do and he, he tells the king of Persia, King Cyrus, he says, not only do you need to let them go, and not only do you need to let them go free and go rebuild their temple, you need to pay for it. And, and somehow the, the, the heart and the ears of the king of, of the world who, who is not a follower of God, who has no connection to him and is actually probably committing adultery or idolatry in his own heart about himself, that it's not that he's worshiping another God, but that he would see himself as God. And somehow God speaks to him and says, not only do you need to let my people go, but you need to pay for them to go and rebuild the temple. And then last week we walked through four chapters of Ezra as we watched the story of the temple being rebuilt. And again, we see God's miraculous hand at work that, that no matter the opposition and no matter what it looked like and no matter how long it took, 15 years of frustration and in the first two years they're only able to get the foundations and all of this this context and understanding of the story that it went on we see that ultimately it's always in God's hands that whatever we're facing whatever we're going through each step of the journey ultimately it's in God's hands but so far there's been one thing that's been missing from the book of Ezra the book of Ezra. We're missing Ezra. Um, we've, we've journeyed through 60% of the book and his name hasn't shown up once. It's not that we've ignored him. It's not that, well, we're, we're just going to ignore his part in the story till we get to where we want to preach about him. Ezra's name hasn't come up. We, we went through that giant list in Ezra chapter 2 of all those names. He's not not one of them. We haven't heard from him. We haven't seen from him. We haven't even been introduced to the guy whose name is on the book. And what we're about to discover is, is that Ezra wasn't even a part of the first five or the first six chapters of the book. It's not that we were somehow just not, that, that he hadn't been front and center in the story, he hadn't been a part of the story yet. And in all likelihood, as we're going to see, Ezra probably wasn't even born in Ezra chapter 1. That, that the book that bears his name and the story that his name tells, he probably wasn't even born when his book began. 
But so Ezra chapter 7 opens, the temple has been rebuilt. This, this journey that they've gone on, Ezra chapter 1 begins with them coming home. And then there's six chapters of, of the, the story of the temple being rebuilt. And Ezra chapter 7 begins this next part of the story. And we, we, we enter into this part where God's people are they're celebrating, they're full of joy and excitement as what they've done and what the Lord has done through them. But what we discover as we look at the rebuilding that takes place in the book of Ezra is that it's not just the rebuilding of the temple that God cared about. That the story that God tells isn't just in the rebuilding of a building in and of itself, but this transition that takes place in Ezra chapter 7 changes the focus of the rebuilding, where it's not just, hey, let's rebuild a building, but Ezra's entrance into the story is about the, the rebuilding that needs to be done in the people. That it's great that this building has been built, but it's not about a building, it's about the people. And so we need to see the rebuilding of our people. And this is where Ezra comes in, and this is why Ezra takes center stage, is that there were other people who oversaw the building of the building, but now Ezra's the man who's going to oversee the building of the people. Now, as we begin the chapter with, with another one of these things that we've talked about a couple of times throughout this book, a big time jump, um, but one that we don't really know about. Ezra chapter 7, verse 1, or Ezra chapter 7 and verse 1 begins with, after these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So last we knew, when we were together last week, we saw the transition go from Cyrus to Darius, and now we're on to king number three inside this one book. That it started out with Cyrus, then at one point it's just, we're just told now Darius is the king, and now we're told just here Artaxerxes is the king. Now I'm sure that like we all are, um, it's not hard for us to, to know and understand the, the reign, times, and length of Persian kings. It's something we're all familiar with. It's something we're, we learn from an early age is just what did the line of Persian kings look like? Who served from when and how long? I'm sure you're all familiar with that. Or probably not. That, that you read that and, and you go, okay, there's a new, but what, we don't know what that means. Of course we don't. Why would we know at all about King Artaxerxes and how long was Darius king for? It doesn't tell us. We just read that. But what we just, what we discover is if we look into this, that this means there was about a 60-year jump from the end of chapter 6 and the completion of the temple to chapter 7 and the arrival of the man whose name is on the book. So we, we see this, this big time jump. Remember, last week we talked about these time jumps that exist, and now here we see another one of these time jumps. But Ezra chapter 7 begins really interesting because it begins with a mini genealogy for Ezra. Verses 1 through 5 tell us about Ezra coming on the scene. And then it tells us who all, you know, he was the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. Um, and these names might just seem like another list, like the other lists in this book that we've talked about. A list of unpronounceable names that we know nothing about. And in a way it kind of is. But just like some of the other passages similar to this, there are some things that be, can, can be taken away from this. And specifically, I want to highlight for you what I think is the main point, only so that we can discover that it's not the main point. But what I think the main point of this list is, 
found in verse 5, as they're listing off each of the, the, his, his journey of, of his genealogy, it says, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This list shows us that Ezra's family line can be traced all the way back to Aaron, the chief priest. Moses' brother, his right-hand man, that, that he, he can go all the way back and say, from the very beginning of the idea of a priest, my family line goes back to that. His, his pedigree, his, 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 his stock is second to none. If, if he were a racehorse, he'd be a thoroughbred. Ezra is a priest, and, and that's what they're showing us. But we're also given some insight into more than just his family, what made Ezra significant. And that's why I think that, that the main point of this list is that Ezra came from a family that should give him significance. But I think what we're going to discover is that his significance doesn't at all come from his family. See, once you go back as many generations as you do in that list, 15 generations in all, the number of great, 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 great grandsons that Aaron probably would have had is probably a pretty big list. That Ezra, my guess, and I don't know, but I can only infer that every generation along the way didn't only have one child. That the, the family tree would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that to be able to say, I'm a grandson of Ezra, or I'm a grandson, a 13-time great-grandkid of Aaron, Ezra probably isn't the only one to be able to do that. That you see that, you know, people will say, well, my great-grand-ancestors came on the Mayflower. And the number of people whose ancestors came on the Mayflower is a lot bigger than the number of people who are on the Mayflower. Because the family tree builds out and out and out and out and out. So it's significant that Ezra can trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron. But what I think we're going to see is that that actually has nothing to do with why Ezra's in the position Ezra's in. That the book begins by saying, in case you're wondering here, but we see something else that was going on that makes Ezra the right person to oversee and to be in charge of the rebuilding of the people, not the temple, but the people. Verse 10 tells us this about Ezra. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So we can see three things in these verses about Ezra that allowed him to be God's man for the job. The, the person that God chooses. And it's not just because his great, 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 whole bunch of greats grandfather was, was Aaron. That that wasn't the only qualification, but that there was something more significant that was going on here. So we see from this that God said, I need someone to do something through. I need someone to use. I need, the temple is rebuilt and, and Zerubbabel was good for that and, and Nehemiah was good for that. And the, the, these people were the right people, but now it's time to rebuild my people and I need some but something else. And we can see that, my, that what must be close to God's heart is something that he looked for and something that he saw in Ezra. And we're going to see what that, what that looks like. But we see three things about Ezra that made him the man that God wants to use. First, we see that Ezra is devoted to the study of God's word. 
Now, this is going to come up and up and again. All three po points use this word. So let's just start with this. Um, when we talk about what Ezra was, we're going to talk about how Ezra was devoted. So what does devoted mean? Well, this means a, it's a strong word that means like a single-mindedness or an undistraction. That, that his, his heart and his life were committed to understanding these things. Were committed to doing these things. That it wasn't just he liked it. It wasn't just that he was good at it. It wasn't just that you know, he had an affinity for it or he had a natural inclination or a bent. Wherever he started from, he gave himself over to it. Ezra had given himself to God's word. He was defined by God's word. His single-minded life was dedicated to God's word. Understanding God's word takes dedication and it takes time. Understanding what God's word says rather than just what we want it to say. You don't have to look hard and you don't have to look deep to find all kinds of people who have used and who continue to use the Bible to justify and give credibility to all kinds of ungodly behaviors. That, that we can take God's word and given enough time and enough energy, I can do a hack job on God's word and make it say whatever I want it to say. But understanding God's word, understanding the word of God takes dedication and it takes work, it takes commitment. Because inside of God's word, we find everything that we need for life and godliness. We find the most clear and relevant place where God will speak to us and will show us his will for our lives. It's not about me finding what I'm looking for in God's word. It's not about me looking for something applicable to my life or my situation. When I look in God's word, as I devote myself to God's word, it's about me finding God's heart. And the Holy Spirit bringing passages and points and stories and verses alive in my life to show me what God's heart and will and desire for me and my life are. Being in God's word is so crucial for our lives as followers of Jesus. The consistent study of God's word is the best way to know him. It is the best way to get to know God. It is the best way to have a relationship with him, to have him speak to us. It, it, there's lots of things that are good. The best is to be in his word. It's the best way to be led by, according to his values. The, the wonderful thing, the daunting thing, the terrible thing, it's all of these things about God's word is that it's a lifelong process. It's wonderful that we never get all the way to the end. We never get to a place where we go, did it, done it, don't need to do it anymore. It's wonderful. And it's terrible. Because we're never done. You read it and you just got to keep reading it. And you just keep coming back. And so we never get to a place where we're able to say, did it, done it, got done. It's a wonderful thing, we're never done. But you're never done. And so we keep coming back. Scripture is alive. And it connects with you fresh in the moment with instruction and insight as the Holy Spirit inspires. So we spend time in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit inspires the Word of God to, to speak to us and to speak through us. And we look at the Word of God. It is alive and it is, we, we can preach for hours on just the things that the Bible tells us that the word of God is. 
But second, Ezra is devoted not only to the studying of God's word, but the verse tells us that after studying God's word, Ezra was devoted to the observance of God's word. That, that means doing it. That, that he, he wasn't just devoted to, to reading God's word. He wasn't just devoted to understanding God's word. It wasn't that he was just devoted to, to the idea of God's word. He took it, he read it, he devoted himself to it, and then he observed it. He did it. See, our lives need to be personally committed to obeying God's word if we want to bring about change in our lives or in our communities. The, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were devoted to the study of God's word. More so than probably anybody in history. But they didn't live it out. They knew it front, backward, forwards, backwards, in all kinds of different ways. But they missed the ability to live it out. But this, these verses tell us Ezra lived it. He committed himself to understanding it. But then he, the understanding needed to take the next step and to live it out. And he discovers and uncovers the heart of God inside of God's word. And he knows, I got to do something with this. It's not just enough that I know it, but now that I know it, i got to do something with that. And often, this is a place where so many of us fall down. It's one thing for me to know what God wants from me. But it's another to actually take that and do something with it. It's one thing to know that God wants me to move to Thailand... But it's another thing to move to Thailand. It was one thing in Matthew chapter 19 for the rich young ruler to know what the scripture had to say about living your life. He knew it. He believed it. Jesus will say, you need to keep my commandments. He'll say, I did it. Since I was a little boy, I've done it. He knew it. He believed what he was doing. He understood what the word of God says. But it wasn't just about knowing it. It was about understanding the heart of God. That he needed to live out the things that he knew in a way that was not just what he expected or, or what he thought just based on, on his understanding. See, he knew that he had to love God above all else. He knew that. And he said, I, I've done that. He knew that he had to love his neighbor as himself. He knew that. He said, I've done that. Since I was a little boy, I've done that. But when Jesus said to him, that, that the fact that you understand that those are the things you need to do is great. But for you to live this out, for you to not just know what to do, but to actually do it. What this looks like for you, my friend is you need to sell everything you have and give it away to the poor. And suddenly, there was this giant disconnection between what he knew and what he now knew he needed to do. And the verse tells us that he went away sad. That as he was confronted by what he needed to do because of what he knew, it left him sad. But we can also know, based on ourselves, 
perhaps some of the other things that he might have done. He might have went away sad, but also justifying why he didn't need to do that. It's not fair. I worked hard for this money. Why should I just give it away? Look at all these other people who get to keep their money. Yeah, I may have a lot, but, but so do they. So why isn't Jesus telling them to give it? I'll give my money away when they do. That's who Jesus should be speaking to. Their heart is way worse than mine. Or maybe they think, maybe he thinks, well, maybe Jesus meant it metaphorically. I wonder what he could have meant by money. Because surely he didn't mean give away, actually sell my stuff. And he must have meant some kind of word. Jesus liked to tell word pictures. What can I make the money be in this story so that it's something I'm more comfortable with? Well, you know, if I, if I choose to look at what Jesus had to say, maybe I can find a way to, to do what I want to do while still feeling like I'm honoring Jesus. I mean, Jesus just doesn't get grace, right? Jesus, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what it means to follow him. He doesn't get grace. So when, when he says sell it all, I, I mean, I do a little of it, then there should be grace for the rest, right? Jesus just doesn't get grace. My salvation is not based on works. So I'm good. I don't need to do that. And here's the reality for all of us, for, for you, for me. The, the more we're devoted to the word of God, the more time we spend in God's word, the more we're going to plainly see what it is that God's word asks of us. And the more we're going to be confronted by some of the things that God's word asks from us that maybe we're missing out on. Be it the things that God has instructed us to do, to sacrifice, to not do. Be it our hearts, our sin, our attitude, this, our attitudes, the things that we feel to be our rights, what it means for us to take up our cross and follow him. And we're going to find ourselves again and again confronted with the same thing that the rich young ruler was. We're, we're going to have the same choice. The rich young ruler, we're going to be confronted by these things and we can go away sad, angry, looking to be justified, deciding that we just don't like what God said so we're going to ignore it or we're going to look for a way out. Or we can be like Ezra. When, when we see and discern the will of God for our lives, we can be devoted to observance of it. We can live it out. Jesus will talk about the, the, the importance of this when he tells the story of, of a wise and a foolish builder. He will talk about how to be a wise builder. The, the metaphor, of course, being for our lives. And that if we want to build our lives in a way that we will be able to withstand the rigors and the stresses and the challenges of life, that it's just something somebody who knows the word of God that's going to be able to do this. But it's someone who does things that Jesus will say this. Therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine, who is devoted to the word of God and puts them into practice, who is devoted to the observance of them, is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. So Ezra studied it. And the overflow of that was that he lived it. 
But there's an overflow of that as well. See, third, it tells us that Ezra was devoted to the teachings of God's word. So as we commit ourselves to understanding God's word, the overflow of that is I need to start doing something with it. And the overflow of that is I need to talk to people about the things that I'm doing. The overflow from our lives will be to spill out onto other people. And that's what's happening in Ezra. The more he understood it, the more he lived it, the more he knew he needed to share what he had learned that impacted him so greatly. And that's not always easy. Because that doesn't always and for everyone mean preaching a sermon or leading a Bible study. But in our everyday life, it means being iron sharpening iron with each other. It may mean challenging other people's errors in theology or the way that they're living, showing them impurity or sin in their lives. And you may know this, but people don't always like people who do that. But teaching the word of God, God's word, and his heart for our lives, it's about seeing what is and if it should or shouldn't be. It's about seeing what isn't and seeing what could be. Understanding the will of God is to, to, or understanding the word of God, living it out and teaching it, is to be able to say to each other, I think this is what God's word is telling me. And this is important because unless there's a devotion to teaching the word of God, compromise will soon occur. And as we look at the closing chapters of Ezra next week, we're going to see that, that this is exactly what happened. That this role, this, this job of being the teacher of God, or teacher of God's word is precisely why God chooses Ezra. Because it wasn't just a building that God wanted rebuilt. It was a people. And the people of God need some heavy duty work in the closing chapters of Ezra. Because the people have compromised. And the people have wandered away from what God had for them. Like the rich young ruler, they knew what God wanted from them. And like the rich young ruler, they walked away from it. Justifying it and rationalizing it as they went. And God needed someone devoted to God and to his word who really lived it out to come along and speak to the people about what was going on. Ezra's devotion to studying, living, and teaching God's word made him the man for the job of bringing God's word to God's people to affect God's outcome. We're introduced to Ezra in a way that says, look at him. But then we're told that it's not really about who Ezra was. It was actually about his heart. And what we see in Ezra is it's not about the resume or who he was. It was his heart for the Lord. It was his passion for God and how that overflowed in his life. That allowed him to be the one that God sought out. And I hope that's encouraging for you this morning. When you look at your life and who you are and you think, yeah, but who am I? I'm no one important. I'm no missionary. My talents, my abilities, my resume, they don't lend me to be someone that God is going to look to use. It's not all those things that matter. It's a heart that's devoted to God. And out of that flows God's ability to use us. Let's pray together. Father God, 
I thank you that, that from the beginning of time, from the foundations of the earth, from our, our very beginning of existence as a people, God, you created and you knit together each one of us into who we are. And God, I thank you that you don't make mistakes. I thank you that there's not one here that was thrown together from spare parts. There's not one here that was thrown together with, with the leftover bits. I thank you that there's not one here that, that you looked at after being created and went, oh, I missed this. God, I thank you that each one here is created in the image of God. And God, I thank you that, that there, there's not somehow any parts of, of who we were created to be that somehow make us not be able to be used by you. But God, I thank you that you created each one of us to fill a role that only we can fill. And God, my prayer for each one of us now is that we would be a people who would be devoted to your word, that we would be a people who would live out your word, that we would be a people who come alongside and disciple and teach others to do the same so that in everything that you created us to do, God, that we wouldn't miss out on it because we walk away sad. Because we walk away not wanting to do what it is that God has called us to do. Not wanting to sacrifice what it is that God has called us to do. Not wanting us to go where God has called us to go. God, I pray that we wouldn't walk away sad. That our story wouldn't be the story of the rich young ruler. That somehow when God said, this is what I need from you. That we look and we go, it's too much. I'm sorry, I can't do that. But God, I pray like Ezra. This man who, who seemingly was qualified for the position before the position even existed. God, I thank you that it's not his lineage, it's not his family that qualified him for his job. But it was his love for you. It was his devotion to you. And God, I thank you that that's true for each one of us. That as we are devoted to you, we're qualified to be used by you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Hillside Church. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Hillside Church, there are a couple places you can go. HillsideAirdrie.ca is our website, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at HillsideAirdrie. You can also look us up on YouTube and find all of our messages on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to connect to the pastoral team at Hillside, you can do that through our website, hillsideairdry.ca, and click on About Us in the main menu, and then click on Our Pastors. We're so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Hillside Church, we are a family, not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. As family we go. Though the earth may pass away, your word remains the same. Yeah. Your history can prove there's nothing you can't do. You're faithful and true. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart learn when you speak a word, it will come.
is your faithful. 